it's really hard to do things in space. It's very resource constrained. And so you never quite have enough mass. You never have enough volume. You never have enough power. You don't have enough data. You're a hundred million miles away. It's very difficult to communicate. The environment is trying to kill you. There's just a lot going on there. Welcome to Redefiners, a podcast designed for daring leaders who are changing what it means to lead in today's increasingly complex world. I'm Nanas Motoshami, a leadership advisor at Russell Reynolds Associates. And I'm Clark Murphy, the former chief executive and also a leadership advisor. Nanas and I have spent our careers exploring what works and what's next in the realm of leadership. In each episode, we ask our guests deep and provocative questions about how they've challenged the norms and how they've redefined their organizations and ultimately themselves as leaders. Also, you can answer this one question. How are you redefining your leadership? Perhaps the boldest question yet. Conversations that matter. Inspiration for us all, whether you're kicking off your career or crafting your legacy. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Redefiners. I am so excited to talk with our guest today. He is someone who has been working on undoubtedly some of the world's toughest challenges across a variety of industries, including space, mining, transportation. Prior to his current role, he was a NASA engineer working on the Spirit, Curiosity, and Opportunity rovers, which is still in operation on Mars today. How cool is it to work on something that's used to explore another planet? Clark, I am really thrilled to welcome our first rocket scientist to the show. It is not every day that we get to hang out with one. I'm really eager, obviously, to learn more about his time at NASA, but I'm actually very curious to learn more about the man, um, the kind of the personal side, and to understand where he gets his drive from, and I would actually even call it vocation, to solve some truly unsolvable problems related to sustainability. I mean, he's someone that keeps going when, quite frankly, I think most of us would walk away from because they're so complex. Well, I got to say, I publish a book on sustainable leaders, and we talk about who can change the world. Uh, and our guest is not changing our planet, but changing other planets as well. So I'm I'm fascinated, a little intimidated, uh, but pretty excited to have the conversation. Clark, tell our listeners who our guest is today. Our guest is Chris Voorhees. Chris is the Chief Product, Programs, and Technology Officer of First Mode, a creative engineering company focused, as you said, on solving significant problems on Earth, including the urgent issues of sustainability and clean tech development. What I love is the company First Mode's tagline is, we build the barely possible to overcome the barely solvable. It's a perfect fit for what we face today as an earth, as businesses, as citizens that we have accountability. So it's a springboard for a heck of a conversation, and uh, we're, we're psyched to have Chris with us. Chris, welcome to Redefiners. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Nanaz and Clark. It's a pleasure to be here. So Chris, we want to start off with um, the early years, if we can, because you have such an interesting background. You weren't always an engineer. In fact, you almost became a musician, uh, which seems like quite a change from where you are today. Can you tell us a little bit about that, some of the early influencers, and ultimately what made you pivot into engineering? I grew up uh, surrounded by music, both my parents are musicians and music educators. And so music was uh, permeated through 
our lives and, and my childhood. And so it was, uh, it is kind of a, the natural direction for me to go. I was good at math, um, mm-hmm. which, uh, is it usually is a, a is, is something that you then get encouraged to maybe be, go into science or go into engineering. I didn't really know what engineering was at the time. I had my dad as a teacher, as a choir director in high school. And I, and I remember one of the things that he did during, uh, during warmups, he'd have his choir sing a chord, mm-hmm. um, four notes, soprano, alto, tenor bass. He'd lift up the sustain pedal on a grand piano and he'd have the choir sing as loud as they could. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you were in tune, uh, you would stop singing and the piano would continue to reverberate that same chord. And what he was trying to show was resonance. Mm -hmm. Um, The way that a a single vibration from one source could cause a vibration in another source. And uh, as he was figuring out that I was interested in math and science, he, he gave me a textbook from his college, from his uh, schooling that was called the physics of music. Uh, and everything that we were learning about in music has this corollary into the rest of the physical universe. I, I realized that there's a lot of overlap between those things. Mm. What I was really interested in was composing music. I like to make things and I like mm-hmm. to make music. And I think the conclusion was in the end that I liked to make things more than music. Yeah. But I still make music. Uh, it, it's it's uh, it kind of never went away. But in my head, um, I don't see any difference between the process of composing a piece of music uh, from making a new system mm-hmm. or writing a book. Um, you you care about the narrative, the the story yep. that you're telling, the beginning, the middle, the end, the the reason for being, the reason for for doing. Um, and so that still permeates the way that I, I look at a new problem today. Fascinating. Did you have any inkling in those early years, Chris, that solving problems on such a grand level is ultimately, you know, what would drive you? Was, that, was there a vocation early on? Well, I was interested in space exploration okay. um, in leaving high school. There was a, a space event that happened in 1989 mm-hmm. that was a, a spacecraft Uh, named Voyager 2. The two Voyager spacecraft were two robotic explorers that were our first ventures into the outer planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. And in 1989, Voyager 2 rendezvoused and and flew by Neptune. And I'm in high school uh, at the time, and, and I I saw this, uh, this is a thing happening, you know, over a billion miles away. Uh, and we're getting pictures back of this gas giant that we had never been able to see outside of a ground-based telescope. And there it is in this brilliant set of shades of blue. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was the craziest thing ever. I wanted to... I wanted to know how to do that. Like, what did it take to send something that far away, get a signal back, and actually then create a thing that inspired people through its visual imagery, right? What it was able to see uh, in a place that 
very likely that none of us will go to anytime soon. Hmm. I thought that was just the most interesting problem. Hmm. And, uh, and so I figured out where they did that. And that's actually where I started my career was at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is one of the only places in the world that concentrates on the robotic exploration of, of space. Mm-hmm. We ask everyone what your redefining or defining moment is. Is Voyager 2 sending a signal back from Neptune? Was that your defining moment? That was the decision point for sure of saying, maybe that's a good next step. For me, the real defining moment was uh, working on the Spirit and Opportunity rovers that went to Mars in uh, early 2003. It was the culmination of a lot of thoughts that I had had about how to make things, how to see the world in a particular way, how to connect a problem to a solution. And it was a, a very specific set of objectives uh, on a, in a very, very, very complicated problem um, across the solar system. It was, I, I think, where I learned how to be an engineer, mm-hmm. uh, how to be responsible and cognizant how to break a problem down into solvable bits and put that problem back together Mm -hmm. so that you can do something. And then really just the power of people that it's like, you can do anything. So there you are working on these Mars rovers, cool and daunting at the same time, right? And and I guess the simple fact that you're sitting in one planet while you're trying to foresee and mitigate problems in another planet that you really don't know much about. Yeah. <laughs> was it daunting? <laughs> was it daunting for you? How do you begin to approach that? Uh, we know a tremendous amount about the planet Mars today that we didn't know twenty um, some years ago when we first started the design and development of those systems. In some ways, that's daunting. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, ignorance is bliss. Mm. And if you have to do something, you use the best information you've got. You use the best analogs that you can find. We did a lot of field testing in places that we thought were analogous to Mars. And and so my my responsibility were the, the vehicle's mobility systems, its, its wheels, its drivetrain, how it moves around on the surface. And we didn't really know very much. And so we had to come up with the best guesses we could. Mm. And that sounds frightening, but at, at some point you have to take your best guess. Mm. The best choice or the easiest choice is no choice at all. You could just choose to wait for better information or wait for more information. And the real beautiful thing was that we couldn't um, Celestial mechanics drove the deadline. It's like you can't slip a month. If you slip a month, you have to wait 26 months to go to Mars again. Mm. Uh, You have a two to three week window in which you need to get off the planet and on your way. And that is clarifying. Mm. With uh, Spirit and Opportunity, we started less than three years away from that window. But we knew the entire time how long we have. Um, otherwise, you can spend forever thinking about a problem. And so uh, that, that was a tremendous takeaway for me was that you could have all of the greatest people and you could have all of the newest technology and you could just sit there and not make a choice. But if you have to, 
because literally the planets are aligned and you need to make a choice, um, you can. Uh, you can as a group, you can look at those risks, you can figure out what is acceptable and what is not acceptable, and you can still get something done. And that was particularly insightful for me in how to use time to help make decisions because time is a consumable that we don't think about very much. It's the one resource that you can't make more of. You can't make more time and you don't know how much time you have. But in the case of sending a spacecraft to another planet, you know exactly how much time you have and you, you have to use it as a resource to help you make decisions. So Chris, we write a book about sustainable leadership. And um, in all seriousness, we talk about the difference between what we call moonshotters, those who take on the impossible and act even when they don't have all the answers. They just say, we got to move versus the hundred percenters that say, I want more data. I got to be sure I know what the factors are. And you've just described the Mars shotter versus the hundred percenter. Do you face any friction of people who want more data or, or more research saying, hold on just a little bit longer? Or did you face anything like that? I think always. Um, and, and it's a tension um, that exists between incomplete information and the need to act uh, in order to get more information. And that dissonance, I think, is, is real and has shown up in problems that are not like not planetary science and not solar system exploration. They, they're they very real with the problems we have on Earth as well. There's this need and urgency to act on a problem and also usually a dearth of information to help you make choices about what is right and what is not. That can just have a tendency to lead to, to paralysis through, I guess, um, a thought that if I just wait long enough, there will be enough information to allow me to make the exact right choice. And I guess that's just not something that I ever learned, actually, from the very beginning. Uh, it was that time is a factor and that time matters because you could miss your opportunity to try. The act of trying is actually a better way to acquire that additional information. But it's really scary to try because doubt and fear, like that's for anybody doing something new, it's, there's never enough information. And so you have to create a culture where urgency helps drive those choices. And you, you also look at time as part of your risk profile. Um, and and a lot of times it's it's not. It doesn't show up at the top of a list. And for me, that time is is very important. You can always make a better system. You can always make a safer system. You can always make a cheaper system. But if you don't do anything at all, you may never get the chance to make it better, safer, cheaper, because you missed your window. I think this is probably one of the first questions asked when we talk to boards of directors and CEOs about sustainable leadership and action orientation, because the question is, well, where do I start? Mm. And our response is, just start. Mm. You may pick one thing and act on it, measure it, but just pick one and go. 
uh, and some of the simpler, that's a relative term, issues to solve than getting a rover in Mars a billion miles away. But the thesis remains the same, is you have to start somewhere. At first mode, I think what we've really tried to concentrate on is to be really good advocates of whatever problem we're working. It's really hard to do things in space. Uh, like you, It's very resource constrained. To get anything into space is, is actually, it's very difficult to do. And, and, and so you never quite have enough mass, you never have enough volume, you never have enough power, you don't have enough data, you're 100 million miles away, it's very difficult to communicate. Um, the environment is trying to kill you, right? There's just a lot going on there. You really need to know the thing you're trying to do mm. very well because that thing, you shouldn't be trying to do anything else because if you're trying to do something else, it's likely a waste of resource. So if you don't know the problem very well, uh, you could be spending some of those valuable resources doing something that was not necessary. And uh, when I got into sustainability and decarbonization and started working in uh, big industries in our current resource industry or in mining and metals and, um, and looking at their problems, I, I realized that not all systems have been actually created with that in mind. Um, in some cases, the systems that we rely on every day assume an infinite supply of resources. Mm. When, when your energy input to an operation is suddenly a problem, uh, what do you do about it? Um, when your system was not designed to be efficient in that way in the first place. Mm. So we don't really look at a mine site any differently than we look at a spacecraft. Mm. It's a system. It's a system of systems that is trying to do a specific thing. In order to do that in an efficient way, you better really understand what it's doing, why it's doing it, how it's doing it, who's affected by it, what it interfaces with. And it's really important to spend time on that. It's the deeply unsexy part, right? Implementing is way more fun. Mm -hmm. Doing it is way more fun. Figuring out what the actual problem is, is a slog, but it's super important. We'll be back with Chris after a quick break with Abigail Skerritt, an executive director in our London office. Abigail shares details about Russell Reynolds Associates' new Energy Matters community. The world is on a journey to carbon net zero, and it will take strong, transformational leaders to help navigate the challenges and opportunities along the way. That's why we've created Energy Matters, a new community that brings together industrialists, and investors to debate the big themes and topics that matter across the energy value chain. Topics like the future of transportation, energy investing, climate change, the emerging hydrogen economy, technology, supply chain, and the transition from fossil fuels. We'll dig into these topics and more as we discuss the issues that are impacting the world's path to decarbonisation. You'll hear from leaders like former CEO of BP, and current chairman of Beyond Net Zero, Lord John Brown, former CEO of Vestas, Anders Runevard, CEO for the Net Zero Technology Centre, Colette Cohen, CEO of McPhee, Jean-Baptiste Lucas, Enel CEO and General Manager, Francesco Storacci, and many others. Go beyond the hype to explore perspectives and insights from global leaders on the most impactful initiatives helping to propel businesses 
and the world towards sustainability. To join the conversation, we invite you to connect with us online or in person at one of our Energy Matters events. Go to russellreynolds.com slash energy matters to find out more. And now back to our conversation with Chris. Chris, you mentioned when you were describing your Redefiner moment, kind of the importance of the power of people. Yeah. In trying to solve these complex problems, how do you create the right team, the right culture? Are there parallels from the NASA days to the first mode days? For sure, parallels. I think the first thing is making sure that we surround ourselves with people who care about the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And when we first started to grow the company, we had just a few traits that we identified that we thought we wanted to emphasize when we were interviewing, hiring, looking for staff. Uh, One was just a genuine curiosity about other people's problems. Like somebody that wasn't coming in and just wanted to do a particular widget for widget's sake. Mm -hmm. But like they were just curious about, you know, somebody else's issue. And also were very good systems thinkers. Mm -hmm. They see the connections, concentrate on what that problem looks like, and can see the field at play quickly. We had this one, and still use this today, um, that was just the systems thinking interview session. It was just an hour with the candidate, with a couple of our engineers. And it was one problem. We called it the Zamboni problem. And you just posed a question about a problem that you were having with a Zamboni, and then just wait and see how they work through that problem. Because a lot of people don't even know what a Zamboni is. Yeah. Um, yes. And yes. so so do they ask about that? What are the questions that they ask? Yeah. How do they phrase the problem? How do they scope it? How do they figure out what the problem is? Do they ask about the environment around it? Do they ask about the customer? Or do they just dive in and start saying, you know, start talking about the machine? And, and what we're looking for is, did they did they try to figure out what was actually trying to be solved, mm-hmm. right? Which is to, you know, clean the ice up. Did they go all the way back to that? Did they figure out who the stakeholders were? Did they use good first principles? And so we wanted to find folks that were somewhat ambidextrous, that didn't necessarily care about the specific problem, but could navigate from one problem to another. Mm-hmm. Um but use those same skills, draw from them uh, to help identify a good path and then ultimately arrive at a solution. You talked about being a responsible engineer. Mm. And there's a discussion today about responsible innovation as opposed to go out, break it, try it again, figure, make it better. Can you talk about responsible innovation, what it means to you? I think frequently... We don't necessarily spend enough time thinking, let's say we're working on a widget and we really like our widget and we think our widget is great. Uh, I don't know that sometimes a lot of time is spent thinking about the system in which the widget has to operate, the greater system, how it interfaces with the rest of the world, what those ramifications could lead to that could be unintended consequences about the widget that you think is great. Um, One of the things that I've learned from mining and metals is this concept that they call social license to operate. 
And what social license to operate means is uh, you could have all of the permits, you could have all of the money, you could have all of the authorizations, you could have all of the people, and you still might not get your mind to operate because the people around it may just tell you no. Mm. They may they may protest. They may riot. They may flip your trucks over and set them on fire. They may, and sometimes have, choose violence to keep you from doing your work. And of course, mining is a very controversial industry and has a really, in many ways, a dark past. But it's insanely critical to our entire society. It, 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 we use its outputs every day to do everything, including this podcast. So there's this tension there. But I guess what I took away from that was that community is an interface for that system. It's a critical one. Um, you have to take that just as seriously as mass, volume, power. If you don't, you could have the best widget ever, but no one will ever use it. Mm. Um, you could have the best technical solution, but it will never get adopted. Uh, you could have the best idea, but it could have the exact opposite result. And, and while that's once again, not as fun to think about as making the thing, and engineers love to make things. If it's not, if it's not actually doing what you wanted it to do, maybe you should think about doing something else. And Chris, then on that point, how do you get more people on board? How do you shift your mindset? Because when it comes to sustainability-related problems, they're not easy, right? And solving not easy problems requires a shift in mindset. So how should we reframe our thinking to A, focus on the most impactful things, and B, to your point, to make sure that people are on board? Um, yeah, that's a... I, I'm not sure. <laughs> let, me, let me give it a shot. Um, the, uh, the, the problem that we have right now in environmental sustainability is one so large that I think it is easy to be paralyzed. Yeah. Um, it, it's easy to think that it's an impossible problem to solve. It's also easy to think that technology is just around the corner and in five to 10 years, we'll have the magic solution. Uh, and so we just need to wait. We just need to hold on long enough. Mm. It's incredibly difficult to act. I've watched four phases happen, mm -hmm. I think, with the thought of environmental sustainability. Usually it starts as a fool's errand. Yeah. It's just not something that's works. It's a, just a waste of time. It's a waste of in, it's waste of everything. Um, then it's necessary. We're going to have to do it. Not now, but at some point. Then I think it becomes inevitable. It's increasingly urgent, going to need to have plans to make this happen. And then I think finally, it's just a good business opportunity yeah. because it just makes sense. Mm. I think we're pretty close to inevitable now. Um, I think I, I've watched the mining and metals industry just in the last three to four years move from it's necessary to it's inevitable. Mm. And now some of them are, are thinking perhaps it's existential. Uh, and the moment that that happens, 
it starts to look like good business. And you start to think about it both offensively and defensively in your business plan. And the purpose of first mode right now is to try to help people through that mode of force and to help make progress with it. I think what's been frustrating for people who have been concerned about the environment for the last few decades has been the just a frustrating lack of action. There has not been a frustrating lack of progress. There's been an enormous amount of progress, mm-hmm. but it's just such a it's the it's a problem that we've never seen the likes of before. And so it can make even big efforts seem too small. Yeah. But that doesn't at all mean they're not worth it. At some point, and you just don't know when, that groundswell takes. Um, and we certainly want to do our part in that and and ride those transitions to the greatest extent possible. Thank you, Chris. Um, we like to end each session um, with a set of rapid fire questions. So this is where we're going to ask you a series of five questions and we ask you to reply as quickly as possible with whatever comes to mind. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. You've had your cup of coffee. Question number one, <laughs> when do you do your best thinking? Is it morning, afternoon, or evening? Evening. What was your worst subject in school? English. (laughs) Question number three, what's one thing or activity that sparks creativity for you and gets those juices flowing? Doodling. What's your best and worst habit? Um, Estimating. uh, I'm a big fan of estimating and being able to um, not get too caught up in getting the exact number. Um, so I think that's been a good, I guess habit is kind of the wrong thing. Um, but a good trait that I've leaned on, um, uh, worst, um, I argue with myself. Um, I will frequently argue both sides of a problem, which I think is actually quite useful and it confuses everyone else. So I try increasingly to not do that in front of people. (laughs) And the last question, complete the sentence, I wish everyone would. Mm. Okay. I wish everyone would relax. Mm. Um, Let me explain that. Um, We frequently, it's important not to panic. Mm -hmm. And we have such big problems that take a great deal of time and effort, conversations, compromise, and all of those are not helped by panicking. Um, They actually require good thought and good discussion. Amazing. Thank you, Chris. Uh, There's a lot to digest here. Um, And we think back about what we take away. And there's so much here. I mean, it was fascinating for you to talk about in the beginning that music and resonance creating a, a, a vibration from one source that goes to the other. And now we you have this resonance of the things we use every day and the complexity of the mining world and solving these problems. And then you get inspired by Voyager 2 going to Neptune, where people have visual imagery of a place they'll never go themselves. And so you say, okay, I'm going to work on the Opportunity Rover Project 
where no one's ever going to go, but we can learn so much from. And let ignorance be a great motivator, not something that intimidates you, because you could get paralyzed and actually take no action at all. So to take action, you saw, which I love the sense of time. Now, you have a time of planetary science, but time can force you to make decisions because it's the one resource you can't get more of. Time goes away every second that we're sitting on this podcast. So use time as a motivator and as a pressure to act. And uh, literally, when the planets align, you got to go. You got to go. So do that. Create a culture where urgency leads you to choices and time's part of your risk profile. I think so many people are afraid of what to do. But if you do nothing, then you'll never have a chance to make a better system, a cheaper system, a more efficient system. So you've got to move ahead. And figuring out the problem's the biggest slog. I think we always worry about go to the solution. You're saying figure out the problem, focus on the problem by breaking problems down into solvable bits and then putting it back together to solve the problem. Relying on the power of people do the most amazing things. If you listen to them, you can do anything. And to implement, you created teams. So let's think about genuine curiosity, systems thinkers. We, we talk about systems thinkers as the number one thing of sustainable leaders. And finally, this sense of responsible innovation and, and the social license to operate, that you can have permits, you can have money, you can have everything. But the community is the interface of anything we do. It could be a mine, it could be a widget, it could be a device. But if we don't understand the community as part of the interface, then we'll never open the mind, launch the product, or, or solve a problem. Mm. And finally, the four phases of sustainability. Fool's errand, waste of time. Why would we even think about this? It's necessary. We have to do something at some point. This issue has become inevitable, so let's make a plan against it. And oh my God, this might be a business opportunity to change the world. You're making rocket science and rovers and mining seem simple but that's your thing about breaking down problems. So you've broken down a bunch of problems for our listeners and made it a lot simpler. I think you're going to get a lot of demands on your time <laughs> to go speak some more, but thank you for speaking with us today, Chris. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Redefiners. For more dynamic insights from leaders from across industries and around the world, listen to Redefiners wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more or get in contact with us, visit our website at russellreynolds.com. Find us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at RA on Leadership. See you next time. Do you have a question on leadership, career development, joining a board, or other topics you'd like to ask one of our consultants? Well, now's your chance. Send us your question. Email us at redefiners at russellreynolds.com for an opportunity to have your question answered on the podcast by one of our experts. See you next time on Redefiners.